Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> the key to peace and tranquility is you got to be connected spiritually in order for it to happen. Today's guest, Miriam Feldman, is the author of God Said What? I read every single page of this book. It was so good. Miriam, welcome. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Hi. I'm very excited about this. Me too. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Oh my gosh. So you learned how to be a researcher and a writer from your dad? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, growing up, I didn't realize what I was learning, but yeah, I've always been a fact finder. Yes. And that set you on quite a journey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I didn't discover till much later on in life, actually. I mean, I went to college. I was always writing in college and everything, but I didn't feel a love for it. It was just what I did. But then when I became a coach and I started to write and share about somatic healing and coaching things, then I discovered a love for writing and for sharing and for helping people in that way. And then I got the idea, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> and then went in that direction. And I was like, oh my gosh, like my father, he wrote books. I'm writing books. It's a connection. Oh, I didn't realize that your dad was an author too. What kind of books did he write? He wrote business books. He wrote two business books. Yeah. So it was, my mother loves that connection that I have with my father in terms of writing and books. So it's fun to share that. Have you read your father's books? No. One is a little outdated because it was about like home business, but I've looked at them. I've looked at them. And then before he passed away, he was writing about actually Jewish Americans in different, like I think the army or wars. And so that one I've looked at and I've read a little bit because it's interesting. But yeah, it's a great connection to have with my dad. I think that your dad would have loved the book that you wrote. Yeah, I, I think so too. Do you feel like the last book that he was writing may have been influenced by your path? Could have been, could have been. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know, actually. You know, the fact that he was interested in like Jewish Americans who were in the army. I don't know. My father was a very quiet man, very introverted, very to himself in so many ways. So he didn't really let on what he was thinking and feeling a lot. So I, I wouldn't know, but he did love to write and he loved to share and he was retired. It could be. I mean, he became, as you saw in my book, he became much warmer to Judaism and you know, the way we were practicing it and to the people in, in his neighborhood as well. So you never know. Also in your book, you mentioned that you had an accident or something when you were young. Is there a reason you didn't share what that was? No, it was just, I was four years old and I was very excited about wearing a certain dress. Came out of the dressing room and slipped and there was like a corner of something and that's what I banged my head on. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, so it wasn't a big accident. I mean, it was big 
you know, I was bleeding all over it. My father makes a joke, you were bleeding all over the dress, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, thank God I was fine. I needed stitches, but the floor was slippery. So we were able to just sue for a little bit of money, but putting it in an account gave me the money that later on I was able to use to go on my journey. So we see, and I found this so much in my book when I, especially when I was writing it, you know, you look back and you're like, oh my gosh, how this fits and how God is kind of leading our paths all the time. When we're in something, we don't always see it. It can be quite dark or a mystery. But when I was writing my book, especially people kept popping up who I hadn't spoken to for 20 years. It was very strange, but even seeing like, wow, I had some pocket money to like use and do this thing and travel and learn. And yeah, it was very cool. Yeah. I would love to talk a little bit about your journey without, you know, giving away the whole book, but I have to say like in the beginning, I mean, there's so many parallels to my story, but in the mm. beginning where you're just like secular and going to a liberal arts college and like thinking that Orthodox Judaism is a cult, it's really funny. But when you changed your mind on that, a part of me was like, no, keep that up. <laughs> like, <laughs> So now you no longer believe that Orthodox Judaism is so much like you don't believe that it's cultish. No. And that's why I bring people on my journey is so that they can see like through my eyes and through what was going on for me and what I was learning that experience. But no, I don't believe it was a cult. And I, I think it was unfortunate. It was fortunate and unfortunate because again, divine providence that this rabbi said this to me because it spurred me forward. If he hadn't said it in the, that language, I don't know if I would have gone to rescue, you know, this guy, but yeah, it's, I don't see it as a cult or cultish. How would you differentiate Orthodox Judaism from a cult? I don't know too much about like, like the official terms about a cult, but I look at Orthodox Judaism as Judaism, like traditionally practiced for thousands of years. Okay. And then just being taught. And then like, you could see my ignorance. I don't know how you were raised. I'd love to hear your story, but you know, my parents were amazing. My grandmother lit Shabbos candles, but, but you know, my father had strong feelings about you know, religion. And I think it was just a lot of ignorance on my part. You know, there was even a part in the book where I hear about the Shavuos holiday and I'm like, you guys made that up, you know? So, but for me, it was really just making that connection that my grandmother lights Shabbos candles. She only knows to do that because her mother did and her mother did all the way back in that chain. So I really look at it as a chain of connections and that my chain it was broken for, you know, a generation and a half or something. So I don't look at it as, as a cult. It's interesting because, you know, I saw my mom's mom light candles and put a napkin on her head when she did oh, that you did. too. Oh, so funny, isn't it? Yeah. And again, hindsight, you know, now that I'm lighting candles and, and keeping the Sabbath, I'm like, I wonder if on some level that made a dent for me or an impression on me, but she doesn't keep things as strictly as I do. And through your book and, and starting to take more and more of these practices on, did you ever go back and forth at all of like not wanting to do all of these practices? I mean, once I decided to do it in that kind of fashion that I was doing it, like once I kind of like committed that this is yeah who I am, this is my soul and this is how my soul, you know. Because you're a questioner. To. You're a Yeah, researcher. I'm a big questioner. Yeah. yeah, I'm a questioner and a researcher. No. So I never went back at all. I do have faith 
issues, though, of course, every day you see the world, it looks so dark. How could God do this? How could God do that? Yeah. So I have the questions of faith. How can the world look as it is? So I'm always trying to attach myself to my faith and to what I can't see always. Like that is a practice for me. Like I think you see from the book also that in some ways I wasn't such a spiritual person, but I've always connected to the mysteries of life. I think even my connection with animals also, there was a strong connection with animals. They can't talk to you. They can't communicate with you. But in some ways they do. I just feel like that's just still who I am in terms of faith, the things I can't see. So I never went back in terms of thinking like, oh, I'm not doing this anymore. I never lost that feeling. It's just that every day there's a question of, I want to see the spiritual. I want to see what we're here for. I want that. I want to understand that. I want to know that better. And so I listen to classes every day. I'm always thinking of my faith, always. I think that like listening to classes and continuing to learn in some ways though, like brainwashes you. Aha. Uh-huh. So let me ask you something. So what is your definition of a cult and why would you consider Orthodox Judaism a cult, especially since you're on your path, which sounds like you're lighting Shabbos candles, you're doing things within the faith? Yeah, I don't necessarily think it's a cult either. Mm-hmm. I think that a cult involves some degree of brainwashing. And even sending my kids to Jewish school feels somewhat like brainwashing. What's interesting is my oldest totally rejected the first school that we sent him to because the form of brainwashing didn't resonate for him at all. And I was like, wow, I started sending him to the school at three years old. Like, how can he question this? Mm. And when they weren't able to answer the questions that he had in the way that he needed to hear them, we needed to switch schools. Yeah. So I do that. I agree with you on. So I don't, I think everything in life is kind of brainwashing. Like in some ways I was brainwashed, right? Growing up and you know, the world is like this, the world is like that. Anything we listen to, we're kind of, you know, putting into our mind, putting into our being, we need to filter everything. Even if you're Orthodox, you choose the classes, you choose the people you learn from all the time, all the time. And so, yeah, so there's always filtering and we're, I feel like we're always getting brainwashed no matter what we hear or listen to and expose ourselves to, and we make choices and we can do research and think, but even within orthodoxy itself or within the religion itself, I'm going to hear things that mm, I'm not so sure. And I'm going to question it, or I'm going to hear from someone who maybe I don't trust as much. And I'm going to Find someone who I do trust more and I'm going to ask the questions. That's always a continuous thing. And your your son is smart and you're smarter to even listen to him because he's saying, this isn't working for me. They're not answering the questions. I'm not, it's not resonating. So you're like, okay, we'll find you a different place where you can get your questions answered. And I think that's important. And I, and I think that even within the Orthodox world, people are evolving and, you know, the Baal Shem Tov came and emphasized a different teaching to the world. So people were practicing Judaism. And then the Baal Shem Tev came and he didn't make something new up. He just exposed and, and emphasized a different part of the religion. And then people ran with it. And this is amazing. And then 
you know, rabbis taught that. So it's the same thing with the Rebbe or with anyone else we we learn from. Is it there? Is it in the teachings? Oh, wow. Maybe that wasn't emphasized enough and people went off the rails in a different direction. That's not so okay. So it's a continual process. And I think you're finding that too, probably, you know, along your journey and then you're raising children. So you're seeing how they're responding to things too. What's interesting is, you know, I went on this like singles 18 to 35 year old trip to Israel and I was at a point in my life where, you know, I had had my name in the credits and worked in television and I still felt empty. Mm -hmm. And so I was definitely like seeking for something more, like more meaning. And my roommate on the trip, I felt like she had found something that I hadn't, like she was Mm -hmm. a few steps ahead of me on her journey or whatever. And she was like going to the Western wall and, you know, having conversations with God. And she had met a guy through H speed dating and was looking I guess, like, should she marry this guy? And so she kind of went to learn more about her religion and she had worked in television too. And I was like, man, she's tapping into something I'm not tapping into. And so that was interesting to me, but I will say that I got like the five-star experience, like eat at all these beautiful restaurants and listen to all these rabbis that are like all on fire for God or whatever. And then leave your secular life and change the way you dress and change the way you eat and all of these things that you've mentioned. And, you know, it's really exciting in the beginning, but then when you have to live that, where are all the rabbis then, right? You move to different communities and you have to get involved in those communities. And if you don't, then you're just the blind leading the blind. (laughs) Yeah. Judaism, you really need to be connected with people. (laughs) Definitely need to be connected with people. So then for your journey, so is that what happened? Like you got like, wow, this is fantastic. And then you just decided to start practicing because what you learned made sense and felt meaningful. It felt meaningful in the beginning and Mm -hmm. kind of like you, you went to people's homes and you saw happy homes and you saw more meaning in their life and they felt like they knew why they were here and you're like, oh, I need that, right? But then doing that when you don't have that as an example is beyond challenging. Like, you know, neither set of our parents are doing what we're doing. And if you're trying to tap into your roots, my roots are not that. Except right? if you go one generation back and your grandmother's more than one Shabbos generation. I, I've known all of my grandparents and, and a lot of my great grandparents. It's even further back than that. Right. But the one who lit Shabbos candles that you're connecting to, and she only lights Shabbos candles because her mother did. So it's right. like that. But part lighting of that Shabbos chain. candles isn't, you know, keeping Shabbos and lighting oh, right, Shabbos right, right. candles isn't kosher not this, driving and and right. yeah and like not eating certain places and right. not eating at other people's houses and there's like you were saying in the book like so many restrictions i'm like how were you able to throw all of that away and just accept it because of that very particular class in minnesota where i was told like this is a jewish soul and as a jewish soul this is what you do this is what your soul is made from this is what your soul does and i was like Oh, I can try to run. I don't have to do anything, but it's my soul. So that clicked for me. That was, wow. Okay. And then it was just the process from there of trying to raise myself to that level of, if this is my soul and this is how I connect to my soul, then I'm just going to keep going and learning and doing what I can. And then I connected to the Rebbe and that 
is he, the Rebbe is my spiritual leader, my spiritual guide. So if the Rebbe is sharing things with us and seeing things, and he knows a lot more than I do, I like really had to break through a lot of arrogance and ignorance. And he believes this stuff, <laughs> you know, then it's probably true. And I'm going to work with my mind to also believe it too, to understand it, to take it apart. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about the Rebbe thing because I've been to the Ohel. I have visited, you know, both kinds of synagogues or shuls or, you know, walks of Orthodox Judaism. And, you know, my daughter's studying for her bat mitzvah right now. And I felt like there was parallels in your book and kind of what she's learning. I, I was talking to her teacher. She met the Rebbe. And I was like, oh, wow. I was like, did you, what did you ask for? Did you keep the dollar? So people used to go to the Rebbe and they used to ask for blessings for, to get married, for health, for different, you know, directions they were facing in life. And he would give answers. I, yeah, I'm well, like, there was, there was yeah, the yeah. Sunday dollar line. So okay. there was the Sunday dollar line when I was there earlier than that, the Rebbe would actually meet with people like in the office, you know, and then, then there got to be too many people. So then there was the Sunday dollar line hours and hours. I mean, eight hour long line, six. I mean, I would stand on line. It was never a minimum of six hours. When I got on that line, I was on there for six hours and I was not the last person ever. So, and I would get tired and I was young and the Rebbe stood the entire time, like the entire time because he was counting diamonds. It's a different, it's a different thing, you know? And then, yeah, you, sometimes you would come with a question with a with something to say. You can see this online because they have tons of videos of people coming before the Rebbe. And sometimes you wouldn't even have a question, but you knew that the Rebbe was seeing your soul. And then That's you would see really receive the Delia. Amazing. Yeah. So she went to the Rebbe because she wanted a blessing for children mm -hmm. and he gave her $2. And she didn't even say like that she wanted them right away or anything like that. And she ended up having twins two years <laughs> later or three years later. Wow. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. Like, I've never heard that story. Have you heard stories like that? Oh, there's I'm always sure. stories like that. Tons and tons of stories like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that wow. was, and that line was for Jews and non-Jews. Anyone can connect to the Rebbe. I mean, there was Amish people online. It didn't matter. The people knew that the Rebbe was holy, could see things that we couldn't see, know things that we didn't know. There's beautiful videos and beautiful stories everywhere. Did you ever hear him saying himself, and I know you kind of talked about this in the book, that the community decides, you know, whether someone is the Messiah or the Mashiach. Did you, like, how come he never declared that? Well, the community doesn't decide that. That's not for anyone to decide, really. I mean, it's... Okay, that um, was kind again, of my interpretation of what you were yeah, saying. Yeah, it's not like the community decides. It's, it's, again, through the teachings, through the you know, the learnings and everything like that, and then putting the pieces together. But no, the Rebbe never said, I am a Shiach, ever. And people wanted like, because you saw the belief was so strong. But no, never. Because I, I from what I understood, someone has to receive the soul of Mashiach. I, I have no idea, mysteries upon mysteries, but the Rebbe never said it. No. And also, I mean, he did pass away. So what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, you saw that in the book I wrote. Uh, did you did you get to the end? Yeah, I read the entire thing. <laughs> okay. So yeah, so there was a passing. 
But then considering that there's a lot of spiritual worlds and physical worlds. So my belief was that the Rebbe went into a certain dimension that we can't see, but it's different than just anybody just passing it, you know, that kind of thing. And that we can still connect to the Rebbe as our leader and as our king. There are many Lubavitchers who believe that, many other people, I'm sure, who believe that too. And then there's some that don't. And so it was just from the teachings, it was from the people I was connecting to, to believe that the Rebbe lives on in a much closer dimension than just the farthest heavens or whatever. And that's how I relate to the Rebbe. That's why I will write to the Igris, the letters that the Rebbe had written to other people. And then they put it in, you know, certain books. If I have a question, I feel I can write to the Rebbe that way. And there might be an answer for me in one of the letters. Okay. That so I can you break to. that down just a little more simply? So if you have a question, you'll write it on a piece of paper and then you'll put it in a book and then wherever it lands, you draw no. from that? So it's called, there's something called the Igris, right? So for years and years and years, people would write to the Rebbe. The Rebbe had, if you look online, there would be like shopping bags full of letters that mm-hmm. the Rebbe would go to the Ohel right. and read them there. And the Rebbe would answer many of them, like, you know, by hand. So there was, and not every, we didn't always get answers. There would be time I I would write the Rebbe, I would not get an answer. Sometimes you did, sometimes you didn't. Now that we can't see the Rebbe in the physical world, they made a collection of the letters. Doesn't say the person's name, sometimes it does, but there's like seven or nine volumes and they're called the Igris, which is letters. Mm So let's say I have a question if I wanted to move or a certain school, if I wanted to send my kids to something like that. So I would take a piece of paper, a blank piece of paper, and there's a certain heading that you put on the paper. And I would write, dear Rebbe, and I would pour out my heart. And you people do this online as well. There is like igris.com, I think it's called. Oh, wow. And so, so I would just pour out my heart to the Rebbe and ask for a blessing, ask for you know, ask a question. And then I would, you know, give tzedakah, give charity. I have like coin boxes, pushkas everywhere. And then I would just bring the Rebbe to mind as if I'm, you know, standing before the Rebbe asking him the question. And then I would take one of these books that has the volumes of the letters in it and then put the, you know, open up to a random page and put the letter in. And this is like a tradition in some ways, because People in even in Russia, when they couldn't reach the rep, like their Rebbe at the time or whatever, they would might do that with a letter and like a and a chumash, like a Bible, like a Torah, a Bible. They would put it in a certain holy book. So it has to be a holy book. Yeah, it would be a holy book. Yeah. Yeah. Even though divine providence is everywhere. And I'm sure you've had this in your life where you're searching for something. And then the next thing you know, I don't know, your your eye catches a certain word or you hear a certain song, like intuition, meaning like I'm a coach and I'm very much tapped into my intuition and somatic healing. So, but this is something different, like a specific question or request or blessing that you have for a holy person or just wanting an answer from Hashem, from God. So yeah, you can, people would put it in just a holy book and then, oh, they would open up to it. And and what I do with Igris, you open up and then you see it could, it's a letter, you know, written to somebody many years ago. And you see, is, is there an answer in here that relates to what I'm asking? And then you can ask some someone called like a mishpia, like also like a person who you've spoken to before, who knows you, knows the circumstances and say, okay, well, this is what, this is what the letter said. 
Do you see an answer in there for me? And there might be something similar to what you're going through. Many people have experienced that for sure. So that's one way. And some people just go to the OHEL and they write letters and then they just bring them there. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the OHEL and the ritual there. Can you break that down? I'm not someone who goes to the OHEL that often. So I would not be an expert in that at all. As far as I understand, people go, they write their letters there. They kind of say Psalms or you know, give charity there. And then they would stand by the the gravesite and then, you know, read their letter. And then I think, I'm not sure if they rip it up or just fold it and put it in. Yeah. I, when I went, I was instructed to rip it up and throw it in. There you go. There you go. Yeah. But again, we're connecting, you know, it says in my book, I love my book. <laughs> I love your book. I read every page. I was completely captivated by it. I mean, yeah. you're an amazing yeah. writer. How long did that take uh, you, you. To, to complete? Eight years, eight years. What's here is that that the Rebbe himself had explained that when we come to a Rebbe or the Rebbe, that it's not because of the superiority of the physical body, but because of the superiority of his soul. That's how you're connecting to the Rebbe, even at the Ohel. It's because of the soul. It's a soul thing. It's, again, all this stuff that's hidden from us, the mysteries of life. Even when you pray from the from the Jewish prayer book, it's like we talk about angels and, and we're surrounded by angels. And it's always, we're always dealing with the worlds we can't see, you know, I'm but also I did. I like really interested in this is kind of a tangent, but like, how did you feel drawn to taking care of animals? When I was little, we had tons of animals when I grew up with that. <laughs> yeah, that was that was my brainwashing there, you know, but I just loved animals. We always had ducks, bunnies, dogs, cats. My father was very connected to animals as well. So we always had pets. I always took care of them. And again, I'm very connected to suffering in some some way, you know, and I just I loved connecting with them and I wanted to take care of them. So I went in that direction of being a vet assistant. And then I loved wild animals, thought that was fascinating and did the seal rehab work, too, which was really incredible to be so close to those animals. And such an unselfish kind of endeavor because people who work with wildlife, you have to keep them wild. So you can't snuggle up to them and talk with them and everything like that. It's at, it's at a distance. But again, the unselfishness is, is that you're doing it for them. You're disconnected from them and you're just taking care of them physically so you can release them back into the wild. And we did that a few times and it was very cool. How do you keep them wild? Like what's so like it would be a lot of them that came in, it was they were beached. And so someone would bring them in. We would feed them, you know, make seal mush, that kind of uh, not seal mush, but fish mush, and wake every every few hours to do it and then put them in the pool so they can swim. And then but we couldn't talk with them, we couldn't cuddle with them, we couldn't treat them as a puppy. We had to treat them as a wild animal because you wanted them to be afraid of humans so that they wouldn't constantly be trying to, when you release them, you wanted them to connect with other seals, not with people. So that was, that was a fascinating experience. But again, it was like this nurturing thing that I just, and how can I alleviate suffering on any level? Okay. And from there, can you talk about what happened next? In terms of the, like explaining a little bit about the book, how I went from like taking care of animals and then, yeah. yeah, so just, I guess the, the event that happened was, you know, this guy that I was involved with had gone off the rails, it appeared. 
wrote me this letter after we had not been in touch for many, many, many months. And the way he wrote it, he was just talking about being in a school in Israel, doing things that I did not understand what he was doing. And so it was just like, what is going on here? And so I looked in the yellow pages because we didn't have mobile phones or anything, got in touch with a rabbi, went there and said, what is the, held the envelope out gave it to the rabbi and said, what is this? And so he looked at the address, he opened the letter and said, you know, this is a cult. They kind of keep the kids and they don't come back. And it was just like, whoa. And just as the story goes, it's like, but I'm on my way to Guatemala to work with refugees. What's going on here? And he said, you won't see him again if you don't, if you don't try to get him out. And so that's when I, you know, went home, spoke to my roommates and my housemates, you know, do I still care about this guy? I haven't been in touch with him. I spoke to him as well. And I was like, oh my gosh, he really is <laughs> far gone. And that's what it can sound like, unfortunately, you know, because I was very ignorant about Judaism. And when someone starts learning, they're very, very excited and they'll just share everything. There's a huge gap in knowledge. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote my book is to share with other, not just Jews, but even non-Jews. This is Judaism. And this is why we practice what we practice. This is why we, this is what we believe. And it's all there. And that chain doesn't have to end if you want to continue it. That's one of the reasons why I wrote my book. Why should anybody be ignorant as I, as I was about their own faith? If you're born Jewish, why should, why should we not know these things? It one took thing that you, I really connected yeah. to in the beginning was when you said that people growing up would ask you, what are you? Mm-hmm. And you're like, what do you mean? I'm American. Like, I cannot tell you how many times, like growing up a Jew in Kentucky, I was asked that and I didn't mm-hmm. want to be Jewish either. And so um, whatever they guessed, I said I was that. Or I mean, if they said Italian. That. Yeah, um. <laughs> or Italian or Hispanic or Bohemian or whatever they came up with. I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm part that, you know? I wanted to fit in so badly. And, you know, I, I can even understand my kids like feeling that way now, right? And yeah. you went on this search like abroad to try to understand anti-Semitism. And again, outside of America, you were again yeah. asked that. And so I found it to be really interesting that through this learning and through this searching that you're just like, okay, I have to accept this. This is who I am, like on a soul level. Right. And I think that I I think it's so amazing that you had that experience as well. I've never heard that, that someone else had that experience too. But that's so cool that you also had that experience and that your reaction was like, what do you want me to be? You know, my reaction was like, I'm American, American. And it was just like, okay, I'm going to give up and say Jew. So when I started to learn more about Judaism and they said, it's a soul thing. And this is who your soul is. I'm like, then all the pieces started. It was like, start of the pieces started to come together. All these weird experiences that I had, all this battle that I had, even with Judaism started to make sense. It was like these little droppings, you know, like, oh, because I remembered them. I remembered them. And so why did I have this strong feeling about Judaism? And then when someone said it was this, when the rabbi said, it's like a soul thing, this is who you are. Then I started learning more about like the Jewish soul. Oh, okay. That's why they're asking me the question because people are picking up on something that I didn't even want to pay attention to. And that's the nature of the world. We think the nature of the world is something different. But when you start learning you know, mysticism and Hasidus. And that's the way of the world. That's the truth that we can't see. 
everything's made up of Hebrew letters. You know, you look at a tree, you see a tree, but not really. Beyond the tree is the Hebrew letters that make up the tree and the spiritual energy that's coming in through the Hebrew letters. I mean, that's like, whoa, it's like all this mysticism. I think it's cool that you believe that a tree has a soul and grass has a soul and that rocks have souls. I forgot that part. Yeah, the different levels of souls, different levels of highest or life. But yeah, that everything's made up of the Hebrew letters. And the more you learn Hasidus and the more you learn mysticism and and it's like, whoa, this is reality. And so it's seeing reality in a different with different eyes. And I think you had sent me a question from someone who said, how, well, how can you see the world going to this place? Because that's also another part of the message of the book and why I wrote the book was that to tell people we're going in one direction, you know, there is hope. We're going towards this prophecy that's been around for 6,000 years almost. And that as like, when you look around you now, and the Rebbe says, open your eyes. So every store you go into, there's some kind of charity to give to. They're giving to this charity. There's giving to that one. So we can see that there is that the world really is changing. I went to a Matis Yahoo concert. Have you heard of the reggae singer? I've Matis actually Yahoo? seen him in person too. Oh. I thought that was interesting that you mentioned him yeah. in your book and he's really changed. Yeah, he's really changed. Yeah, he has changed. But at the time that he was writing and learning, when he was learning Hasidus and writing his songs, he wrote the song called the Baal Shem Tov. And the Baal Shem Tov song is the letter that the Baal Shem Tov actually wrote to his brother-in-law about meeting the soul of Mashiach. And the soul of Mashiach says, oh, so the Baal Shem Tov asks the soul of Mashiach, when will you come? And the soul of Mashiach responds, when your wellsprings have gone to all the four current, like the corners of the world, have, they've gone out. And so this was in the 1700s. Okay, there was no telegrams. There weren't, there wasn't anything going on then except horses and carriages. So how could that be that I can go to a Matis Yahoo concert, stand there and Matis Yahoo is belting out the Baal Shem Tov song with the words of the letter to the speakers, you know, through these, the sound system in America. And to people, and it was, the audience wasn't filled with religious Jews. It was people from all backgrounds. That's prophecy. That's amazing. That That's something being fulfilled. That's open our eyes and see what's going on in the world. People are talking about acts of goodness and kindness. People are talking about charity, charity, charity. It's the biggest thing now to keep helping people, you know, alleviate suffering. And so I love having my eyes open to those changes. Interesting. Did you ever go back and tell that rabbi, that yellow pages rabbi, what happened? I don't even remember his name. I wouldn't be able to go back. You wouldn't be able to track him down. That would be so I guess if I could, I don't know. I'd probably, you know, again, writing the book, I see my journey. If it had to be that strong a word for me to go on a plane, switch my plans, go on a plane, you know, try to rescue him. So, and then, yeah, it's just, I, when I, especially writing the book, cause I, I had to go back into that 23 year old self and experience what I experienced. I see why things unfolded the way they did. There was an inner process to do. And that's something also that's so important about, you know, religion and orthodoxy and everything else is that just because we believe or just because we wear black hats or wigs or whatever we're doing, doesn't mean that we're not going to do anything wrong or that we're not going to make mistakes because there's an inner peace to everything that we need to do. It's not just mumbling some words. It's not just keeping Shabbos. 
it's all the inner work as well. We're constantly in this battle between our, our egos, our souls, seeing the mysteries of life, trying to be better people. And then we've got childhood wounds and all kinds of things going on. Yeah. Tell me some of your childhood wounds, but another thing (laughs) that you just mentioned, you know, in your book too, you talked about the Rebbe said that you should be doing this with pleasure and with delight. And if you're not doing it that way, then maybe, I mean, we supposedly accepted the Torah and said we would do it whether we understood it or not. But like, what if the pleasure thing never kicks in? Like, should (laughs) you then be forcing it? I mean, how long should you force it before you're like, hmm, maybe I can spread kindness and goodness without all of these restrictions? Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Again, it's I love to listen to a certain speaker named Gedalia Fenster. Have you heard of Gedalia Fenster? No. He'd be great to get on your show. He feeds faith. He learns the teachings of Rabbi Nachman, and it brings up all these questions. Again, it's like, you're right. And it's not just the Rebbe who said to do it with joy and that kind of thing. The Rebbe always said that, but that's also from the Torah as well. And we're not always going to feel joy. And there's hard times that we go through personally and even in the world. There's all those mysteries of life. But but our minds are limited. And again, that's like that arrogance that I was dealing with, you know, all the time. Well, I don't see it. Can't believe it. I don't feel it, you know? Yeah. So That's why I was like, oh, no, <laughs> they got her. I'm like, how did that happen? But you saw how it happened. You saw because little things you connected to. I get that. That's great. But how does that sustain you through? I don't know how many kids you have and how many years you've been doing this. It stains me because I believe that there's a lot I don't know all the time. And it's that not knowing all the time. And that if I'm not feeling it, I'm not seeing it. It doesn't matter. It's who I am. And it's the way that the world is. And the sages knew more. The Torah knows more. And you know, like when you open up a, when you open up like a Chomish, you know, one of the Bibles or Bereshi, Shmos or whatever. It's like, I can read it. I don't understand it, you know, and I look deeper. I look deeper. I read the commentary. So what does this mean? What does that mean? And there's just lots of questions that can't be answered. And that's just a part of life. I like also like hearing about near-death experiences. And there's a, a religious woman who talks about those. That also helps me with my faith. Because again, it's tuning me into the fact that there's something beyond us that we don't know, we don't, see, we can't see, we don't understand. I guess that's, it's like a, on a daily basis. I just connect to faith in that way. Interesting. Who's the one that talks about near-death experiences? Do you know? Yeah. Nomi Freeman. On the book, I have uh, Rabbi Tzvi Freeman. Yeah. So he writes for Chabad.org. I also write for Chabad.org. And he was kind enough to read my book and give me that endorsement. His wife, Nomi Freeman. She talks about near-death experiences. And she's, you know, her father was a studier of Kabbalah. And she's, you know, grew up very religious. And she talks about near-death experiences. And and we know there's light. It's called life after life. So lots of stuff are going on that I don't understand. So when I bump into things in the fate with all the time, like, you know, darkness kind of rules the world sometimes. How could that happen? How could God do that? Is there a God who could do this? And God's good. It doesn't make sense. But I know my mind is limited and I feel pain. Like I, I'm not always, you know, dancing around with joy, <laughs> but I, I guess I think it's commitment. Like I'm just committed to this path and it's a decision that I made. That's what keeps me. Do you fully feel like you made the commitment for yourself and not 
because you wanted to be with your husband? Yeah, thousand percent, because there was that carrot on the stick that kept me learning, learning, learning. But the carrot dropped as part of the part of the book. Remember that? I know I was on my (laughs) edge of my seat to find out how that was going to work out. Yeah, the carrot even, you know, they say that like you shouldn't convert for someone else. I almost felt like it was a bit of that, right? Like he was becoming an Orthodox Jew. You were far from that. And you were very much having to change who you were to make him happy and be with him. That's almost like a conversion. Well, no, conversion is very different because a Jew can't convert. Like you either have the soul or you don't have the soul. Like you're born to a Jewish mother, you have the soul. Or if there's an Orthodox conversion, you get the soul. Like that's the thing. It's always like the soul thing. But some people convert because they want to marry someone. Right. And I'm not a rabbi and I don't know the stuff about that or whatever, no comment. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) But for me, it was learning what was mine. I was learning my heritage and that was mine. Now, God had bigger plans, which was the carrot's going to fall away. And now what are you going to do? And that also needed to happen as well. I needed to do it for me. Can't do something for someone else, I don't believe, especially as something like this. It's it's got it. You've got to own it and believe it and all that. And you saw that struggle in the book as well. So yeah, I owned it. I know you can't speak for your husband, but what did he think of you writing this book? Yeah, totally supportive. Totally supportive. Thank God. That's great. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want to say too much about it because it might give too much away, but totally supportive. Were there things that you took out? Oh, of course. I mean, things that I didn't put in. (laughs) And there was actually things that I took out. I softened certain parts. You know, because again, I went back into that 23-year-old, very feisty, very arrogant (laughs) and ignorant self. And sometimes I was a little bit ruder in the book. And some people advise like, let's soften it a bit. You know what I mean? So I I soften certain parts. And of course, there's not everything's in. And and what's fun is that I'm working on a script now. That's a completely different process than a book. And there's certain parts that we can put in that weren't in the book. So that's kind of fun. Ooh, I like that teaser. And how did the script writing come about? Because it was just, again, even what led me to the book, it's my intuition. So I felt drawn, I felt pulled, compelled. So just like nothing was like, it took me eight years to write that book, you know, and I would do it in the early morning before I did carpool. And, you know, I had editors and it was hard. It was hard. There were certain things in my personal life, there were certain things, and it was just hard. And I didn't know what I was doing. To write an article about healing, yeah, I can do that. But to write a book with showing and telling and dialogue and, and to bring people along with me on the journey, it's a completely different process. But I felt compelled. I'm, nothing was going to stop me from getting this book into the world because it's not like I didn't write it for my own story. Like, look at me. This is my journey. I'm I'm a coach. I work with people from all different backgrounds, all different faiths. People had no idea I was religious. You know, it, I go over the phone. We work over the phone. And here I was like totally outing myself. Like, I'm an Orthodox Jew and this is what I believe. So it was kind of like, okay, God, I know you'll catch me, but I love what I do as a coach. And I'm outing myself as a completely Orthodox religious Jew in a world where that's not always acceptable. So whatever compelled me forward to get this story out into the world, which is, again, I just feel like people, if if they're Jewish, they need to know about their roots, their heritage, 
Why should they be as ignorant as I was? If people feel like we're going towards destruction with the world, why shouldn't they know that? No, we're not. There's something different going on. There's a bigger plan. And I could bring hope to people. And why shouldn't the people connect to the Rebbe and know the Rebbe is here for us and that we can connect and get answers and just, again, make our paths easier and that we are going somewhere. So the same thing is compelling me to write the script. I'm just like, I want this story out there in a bigger way because it's not not a story just about me. It's a story about much things beyond me. I love that. I'm an introvert. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah, I'm a total introvert. All this is, you know, and I was listening to the podcast that you did with Rob Dempford. Deptford, yeah. Yeah, Deptford. And it was just like, it's like constantly going beyond our comfort zones as introverts and showing up and showing up because the intention is that there's something larger to bring to people. So you got to show up to do that. That's amazing. I mean, I even read all of the thank yous that you gave at the end of your book. And it looks like you had a lot of help, like a lot of editors and a lot of steps to doing this. You said eight years. I mean, can you talk about it, what it was like when you finally published it and what that's been like a little bit? Yeah. So I started with one editor and the divine providence of finding a certain editor. And I worked with non-Jewish editors. So I had three editors all together and they were not Jewish. And I felt compelled again that way. So if they couldn't understand the concepts that I was bringing, and again, I was writing for what I would kept hearing intuitively for the masses, for people of all backgrounds. So if they couldn't understand it, we had to figure out a way for me to say it that it would be understandable. Yeah. So I had one editor and then I saw I wasn't going to complete the, the process with her. I had a long way to go. And then I went to another editor We worked together till chapter eight. And what was interesting with her was that as she was reading, she was saying like, she would send me emails, like this sounds like evangelical Christianity. I would say it's not evangelical Christianity. It's actually Judaism. And I I had a sense that she's going to quit on me. She was very, very liberally oriented. I'm like, I think she's going to quit because the subject matter is probably bothering her. And she did. And so then, thank God, I found another editor, and that's the one I stayed with the whole time. And and that was also, like, fascinating, too. Like, I had spoken to someone, and she made a suggestion, you know, call the university here, you know. And so I did. I called the university and said, you know, do you have an editing department? And I'm not part of the school, but can I please work with someone? And and so the the young lady who answered the phone, she said, well, we can't have you if you're not a student of Northwestern, but I do editing on the side. And I'm like, you're hired. That's it. (laughs) And then we worked together for years. I actually wrote a second book and that's about like somatic healing and mind body wellness. And she edited that with me. So that worked out really well. And then when it came time to publish, that was another thing. I actually wanted to get it traditionally published. And so I, you know, I was told you're supposed to reach out to like 200 agents. And each one wants something different. I wrote 50, 50 different letters, and they each want, you know, someone three chapters, someone this, it was all different. And then when I just either, you know, I would hear back sometimes, you know, it's not for us, or I wouldn't hear back at all. I just couldn't handle it. So I put it away for a while. And that's when I wrote the second book. And that was, that's about healing. And then when hashtag my orthodox life started trending on social media, because another woman who had, she had left the faith, she was raised Orthodox, and she left like my unorthodox life, the Netflix series and everything like that. So someone was smart and 
did hashtag my Orthodox life and started, people started writing about their beautiful lives as Orthodox Jews. Then that's when I said, okay, my book is called God Said What? But it was originally a tale of faith, miracles, and prophecy. I took that out, put hashtag my Orthodox life, and now I'm going to publish it and I'm going to self-publish it. So I asked around to different people how to do it. And thank God my husband was very helpful as well. And it came out Purim time, which I thought, again, like I, there were so many times that I literally would just put my head down on the desk and say, I can't do this. Like what's happening? How, you know, and the edits, even the editing, you know, my husband and I worked on the edits, you know, for the last part of the process and it was a big, yeah. So was there joy and pleasure in writing a book and all that? No, it's work. It's effort. Not all joy and pleasure, but you feel compelled to do it. And I'm sure that's how you feel about all the things that you do and the, the podcast that you do. And you just feel compelled to have people tell their stories and, and the vulnerability shared and the connection. And it's just beautiful. And it's like, that's our soul callings, you know? And so the, the public, the self-publishing, that was also another part of huge effort. And it's just, to me, it's such a miracle that it's out in the world that I can share it with people. I just feel very blessed. It's very different having a manuscript and having a published book. And you won an award for it. How did that yeah. happen? Yeah. I just applied to certain awards and that one I got the gold. And it was really exciting. It was woohoo. And again, it's not a Jewish oriented place or anything like that. And they loved it. They loved it. And I won the gold and it spoke to them. And the review is fantastic. And it was just, it's really great to win. And then I get to put the sticker on the books. And it's just fun. It's fun. And it's again that impact that I'm having with people. And then sometimes readers will reach out, a reader from India who's Hindu or just people from all walks of life. And they just said, wow, like I was really touched by your book and your story. Was the tambourine because of your Hebrew name? Yeah, it was the tambourine. And also because the Rebbe's, but the Rebbe said that uh, that this generation of women are the generation that left Egypt. And so we are the reincarnated souls. And we went out with our faith was so strong, even though the, the difficulties were so intense, we went out with tambourines, we went out with song and dance. And so to believe. And so it's again, that thing of this world is not going towards destruction, it's going towards this prophecy where godliness is going to be revealed, spirituality is going to be revealed. We're unified in that mission together to make this world a better place. And yeah, let's go out with song and dance. And it is like a lot of Chabadniks will take tambourines and decorate them. I have a few and yeah. And then the name Miriam, right? Miriam is actually like one of the first stories in the Bible that I very much resonated with. Mm. I loved that story. I actually went to a class or a shear on that story, like I think three times. <laughs> wow. What connected? you to the stories like and to the you know the person well I, one i didn't know it but i liked that if you think about the story of miriam instead of like speaking lashon hara or even mm. evil about people that you get like a double zechus or like a double good deed mm -hmm. i loved that aspect of it have you heard that yeah not the double that if you choose not to speak that you get double reward with it but it makes sense it makes sense because keeping silent when we can say something not okay is important. Is and a important. big challenge. <laughs> and and can be a big challenge. Yep. 
I, I love it. My my kids are very, you know, careful with that. And what's so interesting, it really comes from, again, if we go to a deeper level, it comes from thought. It comes from maybe perhaps we don't feel well about ourselves if we need to put someone else down. Mm. So it, it's all that refinement. It's like, who are we and who do we want to be? And how do we want to speak about people? And how do we want to support people? And something that's trending on social media is Jamie Lee Curtis and her arms up like this. Have you seen it? Her celebrating her, the fellow actress who was in a movie with her. And what people love about that picture is that the woman won an award and Jamie Lee Curtis is celebrating as if it was like she won. But and that's how we need to be with one another. And I feel like that's what you do on Better Call Daddy, where it's just like, let's celebrate each other. Let's hear each other's stories. Let's connect. Let's use compassion. Let's use vulnerability because we're all in this together. Thank you. You're is welcome. there anything you'd like to ask my dad? I know you said you had a question for him. Yes. I want to adopt your dad. <laughs> your dad is amazing. And I listened Aww. to more podcasts about when you and your father were interviewed too. Yeah. I really sit in awe of your dad. And I think I had told you that when I first you know, saw you online and you're, I literally did not understand the name of your podcast, Better Call Daddy. I'm just like, what does that mean? Like, because my father is very wise and he was very emotional on the inside, but he was very quiet on the outside and he was very caring, but sometimes you didn't feel it. He was the, you know, son of immigrants. And it was just, there was like a, a lot of survival instincts, probably trauma as well. So I had some conflict with my father and I wouldn't usually call him up and ask him, but here you are with your father. And it's just like, no, I, my go-to person is daddy. And I just love that. And so your father's just a remarkable person and really so like, as you, like emotional and so emotionally connecting and compassion is beautiful. This is my question for your father. What is, and was your guiding principle of being a parent and father? You obviously have a very beautiful relationship with your daughter. Her podcast is named after you and she seeks out your wisdom and advice. I'd love to know what atmosphere you created in the home and what was your mindset? Ooh, I love that. That's a very thoughtful question. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're This welcome. has been such a great episode. I really appreciate you like keeping the conversation going and like answering all of my tough questions and like, oh my gosh. And you... I just, I feel like you are the ideal guest because there was like nothing that you wouldn't answer or you, or you kind of like declined one, but in a nice <laughs> way. And yeah, you wrote a review. You like sent me your book. You've been so supportive. You listened to my episodes. I mean, thank you for that. That is so generous. And, you know, I even, to be honest, like in reading your book, I was like, God, give me the right questions. Like, you know, there's times in your life where you like want God to put the right words into your mouth. Mm -hmm. I really connect to that. And I felt that in, in preparing for this interview even. Wow. That's so cool because I was on this end saying, God, give me the answers. The words that need to be heard, let me, let me share those. And I always do that. I did a big speech last year in California and I was praying the whole time, whatever words I need to share, whatever people need to hear, put those words in my mouth. I constantly and, and... ask for that. That is something that I pray for. And yeah, Beautiful. you know what? I think even taking that 30 seconds to, to do that 
is just a huge elevation right there. Yes, it is. Because again, you're acknowledging something beyond yourself and you're here to serve. How can I do this? How can people learn from this? How can I make the world a better place? I want this podcast to be that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. You're doing your work in the world. It's beautiful, Rena. And and I really appreciate you reaching out and and just us connecting in this way. And I love your stuff. I love what you're sharing. I love your connection with your father. I love what you're bringing to the world. Thank you so much. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Okay. Well, Lena, you did a beautiful show with Miriam Feldman. And really, we're doing the same thing. We're trying to be spiritual. We're trying to give values. We're trying to give a voice to people. We're trying to help out and hopefully lead by example. She asked me a question is, what kind of environment did I create for you to be who you are? And that's exactly the environment, is to set the right example, to show that you want to be spiritual, that you want to be connected to God, and that you want to be able to do the right things and choose good over over bad choices, which can be evil or where it hurts. So we want to try to do things which make us all feel better and all the people around us better, and where we try not to be selfish, but we try to be sharing, and we try to see if we can get along with as many people as we can. And I think that's part of God's message. What I found to be quite enlightening is that she thinks that you can be close to people that are not here on this earth. And maybe we can, and maybe we can't. But the spiritual connection is through God. And anything is possible if we send the message and we concentrate hard enough to feel connected to God. Maybe the presence of others can be also connected. I think it's possible. Did you want to try that technique? Well, I have a pretty good relationship with God where he talks to me in my dreams. As you know, not all the time did I listen to some of these messages, but I certainly am more connected and try to follow some of these messages now. And he gives me really that enlightening story that I just mentioned. He gives it to me almost every day. So I feel very connected. Is this a physical world or is this world really also a spiritual world as well? And I think it's both I definitely think it's connected. Hey, what did you think of her trip to following her college sweetheart to Israel? And wasn't that really the perfect timing for her to get her life together as well? It was her calling to really get her act together as well. It's not just where she was out there to reach out to maybe help someone else that was at one time dear to her and that she reconnected to, but it was her calling as well. It wasn't just his. I think it was a mutual connection. That's interesting that that was your interpretation because I feel like that was her interpretation as well. All right. I thought it was really quite fascinating. It goes to show you that where the connections really are in this world, we think sometimes are just black or white, and it really isn't that way. There are many dimensions and gray areas to our lives where we don't know what action will actually cause another action to really occur because there's so so much energy out there in this world, we don't know what will actually stick. So that's why a lot of times you have to keep trying and doing things and staying in motion because you never know what's really going to come out of it. And uh, hopefully we try to make the right choices to give ourselves the opportunity for things to happen. I think that part of God's message as well that he gives us is that the more connections you make, the more things that you do in a positive way, that has an enriching process that is the way to have a better world, is that we all have to be connected 
and more and more connected with people where hopefully that is like a cleansing process as well. So your guest wants also tranquility and peace is what this episode really emphasizes. And the Better Call Daddy Show wants exactly the same thing. We want peace and tranquility for everyone that not only listens and participates, but can share that message with others that they run into as well. I love it. Good job, Daddy. All right. See you later, buddy. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 